Our scripture reading for this morning is from Isaiah 9, 1-7. But there will be no more gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. Let's pray together. Father, we come today with your word in front of us and a important reality that we all have to deal with. And that is that there are moments in our lifetime when things get very dark and gloomy and difficult. In some cases, they, those scenarios have been caused by our own sinful actions other times it's because of just hard circumstances. And we come to this time of year and we hear great and glorious truths from your word about a son who would be born. And we need to know about this light that comes at the end of the tunnel. We need to know about the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness of life. So would you meet with us, Lord Jesus? Would you be honored as we spend time in your word? Would you, Holy Spirit, now just... Be our teacher. Apply your word to us as only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things about this time of year that I love, a little confession, is I love all of the uh, little Christmas specials that are on television, the kind that remind me of what it was like when I was a kid, sit down and watch those with, uh, not really my sons anymore, but with Savannah. And... Um, my favorite one of all time, you probably have one, is the 1960s version of the Dr. Seuss book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Okay, I don't care what Christmas special you think is great, this is the top of the pyramid right here. Okay, it is. If you don't remember the storyline, let me um, give you a briefing, a cliff notes on it. Stories about a lonely creature named the Grinch who has, according to Dr. Seuss, a heart two sizes too small. He lives on a snowy mountain, Mount Crumpet, overlooking Whoville. And in Whoville are a group of people called the Who's. And they have Christmas every year full of celebration and singing and dancing and roast beast and hoo-hash and all sorts of decorations. And the Grinch has had enough of this noisy racket down in Whoville, and so he intends to go and to steal all of their presents, their roast beasts, their hoo-hash, all their decorations, and take them back up to his mountain, and thereby destroying 
Christmas forever. He and his faithful companion dog, Max, remember poor Max? Max had to pull that sled all the way up the mountain, remember that? He and poor Max go down to try and grab all the Christmas presents, and they successfully steal all of the roast beast, the hoo hash, and it's, it's a sad story, isn't it, as the Grinch really steals Christmas from the people of Whoville. But the story turns when the Grinch still hears singing down in Whoville. Even though all of the Christmas presents have been taken, even though all of the trappings of the celebration have been removed, the, the people are still rejoicing. And the turning point comes in, in, in this particular few sentences as Dr. Seuss can only say it. I, I love Dr. Seuss books, don't you? I think I've read more Dr. Seuss books to my children than you can possibly imagine. Here's how he says it. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. The Grinch thought of, then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? So, the Grinch that stole Christmas, and for that matter, all Christmas stories have um, an element in them where there's a perspective change that happens. And, and the Grinch changes his perspective, goes down the mountain, gives everyone back their uh, gifts, their hoo-hash, their roast beast, and they live happily ever after in Whoville. That's the story. So go watch it, and I just ruined it for you. So um, <laughs> all Christmas stories, though, have the same basic plot line, and that is that things get really dark, get really dreary, and then there's some sort of epiphany moment or some sort of perspective change. Whether it's Charlie Brown or Ebenezer Scrooge or George Bailey, the fact of the matter is these characters have a perspective change. And, and what you find is that even the, the, the secular renditions of the Christmas story or storylines have this perspective change in them. And here's why. Because when you boil Christmas down, when you boil the Advent season down, what it really amounts to is that the entrance of the Son of God into the world becomes a phenomenal perspective changer. And so in the secular realm, they, they pick up on this perspective changer sort of dynamic and build that into their storyline. And today I want to take you back to the biblical account and show you how the incarnation of Jesus was in effect a phenomenal perspective changer. In particular, we're going to look at this in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 about how the, the, the promise of a son to be born upon whom the government would rest on his shoulders was supposed to be this promise that would change the perspective of a king named Ahaz who was guilty of not trusting in God and instead chose to go his own path and choose man-made solutions. What I want to show you today from Isaiah 9 is this, that the future God promises to us will be as bright as the past has been dark. And that essentially is the message of Advent. And that is that the future will be as bright as the past has been dark. And I don't know what your December is going to be like. I don't know what 2012 has been like. But I would venture to guess that there's a number of us who 2012 was not a great year. 
personal challenges, health issues, a loss of somebody. In fact, as you're looking towards the Christmas season, there may be a sense of um, fear or trepidation. You look towards 2013, you may wonder, my word, what's going to happen in 2013? What's going to happen next? What's my life going to be like in this next year? There's all sorts of things being talked about, even culturally, that are scary and, and fearful. And so I think it's an appropriate time for us to dig into Isaiah 9 and to be reminded that the advent of Jesus Christ was a phenomenal, perspective-changing sort of moment. So we look at first the darkness of the, the past, um, kind of what, what that darkness was all about in terms of where um, Isaiah was living. And then secondly, we're going to look at the brightness that is promised, the hope that is designed to come. And then uh, finally, I want to just help you understand how we as New Testament believers stand in a really unique place and what our orientation should be as it relates to Isaiah 9 and the world in which we live. So the darkness here of the present, what, if, what is it that Isaiah is dealing with and why is this particular text set in the context in which it is? Well, in order to understand what's going on in Isaiah 9, you have to understand the, the bigger picture story of what is taking place. And Isaiah 9 was apparently written as an answer or as hope to a group of people who are experiencing darkness and gloom. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So Isaiah 9 is talking about the hope that is to come, but it's said in the context of words like gloom, anguish, darkness, distress, things of that sort. And in order to understand what's going on in Isaiah 9, you have to go back to Isaiah 8. So look at Isaiah 8 and verse 21. It says this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what's going on here? Well, the book of Isaiah was written primarily to the people of Judah. Israel at this time as a nation is split into two sections, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. And Isaiah is written in order to record God's words, his heart, to a rebellious people, a people who had begun to forsake the Lord. In chapter 1 and verse 4 of Isaiah, it says that they have despised the Holy One and they were estranged from Him. And the effect of this estrangement from God, according to Isaiah, in verse 25 of chapter 1, is that God is bringing discipline to them. Verse 25 says, I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as lie is removed. It will be removed. I will remove all your alloy. So what's happening here is that God is weary of the waywardness of his people, and so he's bringing some form of discipline to them to awaken them to the path that they're on. And in particular, God is going to use suffering through a nation named Assyria in order to bring the people of Judah to their knees, for them to realize that they need to trust God and they should stop trying to go their own way. Now, Isaiah was written... During a time, during Isaiah's lifetime rather, there was four kings that he served with or under, brought God's word to them. They were Hezekiah, that was the last one, 
The first one was King Uzziah. Remember Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah was a great king, a reforming king, a spiritually minded king. He wasn't perfect, but he was uh, one of the, the top kings of Judah. We also have a king named Jotham, and we have a king named Ahaz. Of those four kings, three were renowned for being solid, spiritually minded men. One, however, was not. He was in the tank, and his name is Ahaz. And Ahaz is actually on the throne when Isaiah 9 was written, and he was a miserable king. He refused to trust in the Lord. He refused to trust God. Instead, he chose to go his own way. And the main issue that surfaces in Isaiah 9 and throughout the reign of um, Ahaz is the whole issue of the rising power of Assyria. In Isaiah chapter 7, we learn that Ahaz hears about an alliance between Israel and Syria. Israel, the the split nation of Israel, was to the north. Syria was just to their east. And the country of Assyria was even further to the east. Israel and Syria are afraid that Assyria is going to come and just conquer the whole land. So Israel and Syria form an alliance together in order to push back the looming threat of this superpower called Assyria. Well, in the middle of of that alliance, they decided, look, we need to have Judah join this alliance in order for us to really be strong. And so they begin to put political pressure and then military pressure on Judah to join their alliance. In fact, Isaiah chapter 7 tells us that when Ahaz heard that they had joined this alliance, verse 2 says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook like trees. And so they are scared that these political dynamics around them are changing and that they're being put under this gun to to join this alliance against this major superpower. In the midst of this time, God shows up and says to Ahaz, trust in me, ask of me a sign so that I can prove to you that you can put your hope in me, not in some puny little military or political alliance. And Ahaz refuses to ask a sign from the Lord. So even though the Lord says specifically to him, ask a sign and I'll give it to you, Ahaz rather hypocritically says, no, no, I don't want to test the Lord with a sign. And that's when God then says the following, and it's a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with, I will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call or and, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Why does he give them that sign? Because Ahaz is struggling with whether or not he can trust God. God says, ask for me a sign, I'll give you one. Ahaz says, no, I won't. God says, all right, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And that sign will be, a virgin will conceive, bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, Ahaz, I'm on your side. I'm going to protect you. You're my people. But Ahaz will have nothing to do with this. Ahaz needed to trust in the Lord. Even though the circumstances around him were difficult, even though they were hard, even though there was fear, even though there was a sense of um, foreboding gloom, what's going to happen? And yet he refused. And so Isaiah 9 is written right in the middle of that season. Now let me tell you what happens after Isaiah 9, how this all turns out. Eventually, Ahaz decides that in order to push back this alliance between Israel and Syria, he needs to make an end run and go right to Assyria and say, look, I want to be a vassal of yours. And that's what he does. Rather than trusting the Lord because of the fear of this political alliance to his north, he runs to Assyria and says, I want to become a vassal. And therefore, he brought a tribute to the king of Assyria. And you know where he got the gold 
and the silver for that tribute, he actually got it out of the temple. He began disassembling the temple in order to provide for this tribute. And then he goes to visit the king of Assyria in Damascus, the capital of Syria, after he conquers Israel and Syria. And there he sees this this new uh, altar of worship to the god Hadad, and he loves the look of it. He takes down some dimensions and he sends it back to the priest in Jerusalem and says, take the bronze altar out of the court of the temple and redesign it with this altar. I like this altar better. And thus we begin to see Ahaz starts to integrate foreign worship practices into the very temple court of God. Things go from bad to worse. After Assyria comes in and takes Israel, the northern kingdom captive, after they begin to exert their influence and control, Judah has to keep giving more and more money to this this superpower now that is just now on their border. And the effect is that Ahaz begins to completely disassemble the temple. He begins cutting things in pieces. He takes the gold, the silver, the artifacts, and he has to begin giving all of these things to the king of Assyria in order to pay tribute. And it ends in this very dark scenario in Second Chronicles 28 and 24. Just, I mean, just ponder and, and consider what we have here. Verse 24 says, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And then it says this. I mean, don't miss the significance of this. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In fact, there's another text in Second Chronicles that says, it's kind of an obscure text, he says he put a, a fabric or a covering over the, the way or the path by which the king of Assyria would walk, almost as though he tried to hide their worship of the one true God. So under Ahaz's reign, Israel, because or Judah, because they were afraid of an invasion from the north, became the vassal state of another country, had to pay tribute to this king, completely deconstructed the temple, closed the doors, These are dark and gloomy days. So in in the midst of this season of dark and gloom, Isaiah begins speaking to the people of Judah and speaking to Ahaz. He thought that he was so smart in appealing to Assyria, and in the midst of his fear over what could happen, he ended up placing his trust in his own political devices rather than really trusting in the Lord. Assyria then became a significant threat to Israel. In fact, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 6, you'll see a um, description of what the Bible tells us in terms of how Judah felt. He says this, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, and that's, that's, that's God, that flow gently and Rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, that's Syria and Israel. Therefore, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So there is the sense that a serious looming threat will feel to Israel, or, or Judah, rather continually like they're just barely able to keep their head above water 
And there's this sense of at any moment this thing could completely go south. Assyria's power is growing and growing and growing. They're going to defeat Israel. They're going to defeat Syria. And Judah has to continually pay money after money after money after money after money to to keep Assyria at bay. And this, this is not going well. So Judah is in a very dark spot, and Isaiah 9 is written right in the middle of this season where the king of Judah is struggling and ends up failing in terms of his trust in God versus his trust in his own devices. Isaiah is, in effect, writing to the people of God to convince them that, look, God is worthy of your trust. And therefore, what he does is he tells them about their future, that there's coming a day when a son will be born, a son will be given, And the government will be upon his shoulders. He tells them all of this about what's coming in the future in order to help them to change their perspective now. So, in other words, what's coming in the future should help them to see, don't go down this path of placing your hope in Assyria. Don't go down this path of being filled with fear. God is on your side. He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. But instead, the people of Israel don't go down this path. They go down the path of trusting in Assyria, and it turns out badly. You know, Isaiah 9 and the situation that surrounds its writing, I think, is pretty relevant for where we live today. On a personal level, it may be that 2012 has turned out to be a pretty hard or difficult year for you. Perhaps on a personal level, maybe there has been um, consequences of your sin that you've had to deal with in 2012 or the sins of others. Maybe there's been significant spiritual struggles or things that you've had to deal with internally, maybe a job loss that's been a part of your experience this year, some kind of personal conflict that's made life really difficult or challenging. I can only imagine the breadth of just personal issues and the effect of that can be that you become rather Scrooge-like in your spiritual demeanor. Almost like, yeah, I tried the trusting God thing that's not working so well. I'm just going to try being sinful. I mean, at a micro level, you ever tried that in relationships with people close to you? I mean, I have. So, my wife's not getting the point when I'm acting godly. I'm going to act sinful, because then she'll get the point. That never goes well, just so you know. (laughs) Try and do the God's way, it's not turning out how I thought. So then you go down the sinful path, right? So on a personal level, we understand what it's like to, instead of choosing to trust God, we instead choose to trust our own devices. Let me elevate it to another level. I think this is also important at a a national level, at a cultural level. I mean, right now, December, you're hearing a a phrase that you've not heard before. It's the term fiscal cliff. Just the image is, you know, I mean, it's, and that, doesn't it feel like that? I mean, it's like the sky is falling, the sky is falling, but fiscal cliff is the issue. We have acrimony happening in Washington. Starting to wonder, does anybody get along anymore on the eastern seaboard? Um, this growing threat of conflicts in the, in the Middle East. There's a, a palatable sense of the erosion of biblical values in our culture. There's a sense that I have that it just seems like the church, the evangelical church, doesn't have the kind of influence that it seems like it should on our culture. And you put all those things together, and I run into a lot of folks who just frankly are afraid right now. They're just scared. They're nervous. They're afraid. They're looking at future and just wondering what in the world is going to happen. I think this is actually a great time for evangelical Christians to say, you know what? 
I want to be reminded of the beautiful King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is still on his throne. I want to be reminded that even if we go over a fiscal cliff, Jesus holds the bottom of that valley. Right? Or to realize that no matter what comes in 2013, God's been faithful all throughout our lives. He's going to continue to be faithful. And one of the things we have to be careful of is not making decisions or starting to think in a category of fear and anticipation of the future such that we start making really bad decisions, decisions that don't reflect a heart that really should be trusting in God. So Christmas can actually be a perspective changer where we can look at life differently. And I want you to be able to look at 2013 a little differently. I want you to be able to look at your personal situation differently. I want you to be able to go from here and live this next week with a greater sense of boldness and confidence that, you know what? The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, He's the one that controls the destiny of nations and families and people and be able to rest in the beauty of that. So how does Advent relate to this personal and cultural reality? Well, let me explain how this all intersects. What Isaiah gives us is a picture of the brightness of the future. And again, that the future is going to be as bright as the past was dark. So if 2012 was a bad year for you, I don't know if 2013 is going to be any better, but what I can promise you is that the arc of the trajectory of your life in Christ is beautiful, it's glorious, and it's hopeful. There's three things in this text. The first we see in verses 1 to 2 where we see that the light will shine. Verses 1 and 2, the light will shine. We see that the call in this text is to believe that even though the darkness is dark, God is a specialist in taking dark regions and shining the light of the gospel in them. He's a specialist in taking things that seem like, ah, how in the world is this ever going to work out? And God has an ability gloriously to redeem things that you think could never possibly be redeemed. Look at the first two verses and the contrast between light and darkness. He says, For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Does this sound familiar to you? It should, because in the New Testament this is what Matthew uses to describe the launch of Jesus' ministry. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, in the city of Capernaum. And Matthew chapter 4 uses this exact language to describe the launch of that ministry. Why is that so significant? Well, because this area of the nation of Israel, Galilee, was known for constantly being invaded because of its northern border and also for its constant influence in terms of these negative influences on them by virtue of these other nations. So it's known as an area that's a bit of a throwaway place. It's constantly being invaded, Spiritually, it's always tepid. It's, it's not the kind of place that you think has a lot of redemptive value. It's the kind of place that you think, you know, there's not much hope there. 
There's not much that's going to take place in in that arena. I mean, that's one of the the beautiful things about what Cindy just shared a few moments ago about heart change. And what's happening in Brookside is this neighborhood that that some maybe 10, 15 years ago would have said is a throwaway neighborhood. There are unbelievably amazing gospel-centered things happening in that neighborhood because of investment on our church, investment on other churches. We're seeing the light of the gospel shine into some of the darkest areas of our city. And beloved, that is what God does. He does that over and over and over. That's how the gospel came in the first place. And it's what Isaiah is telling God's people again. A light shines on those who are walking in darkness. One commentary says this. This verse surprisingly predicts that the least likely of area of Israel, the far northern section that was the most militarily oppressed and the most influenced by pagans, will in some way, be honored by God when He sends a new light in the future. There's probably areas of our country, cities, that you'd look at and just think, man, there's, there's, can anything good come out of that city? You may look at a particular person in your family background, your experience, and wonder, could God ever reach that person? And the beautiful message from Isaiah 9 is there is no person, there is no family, there's no son, there's no daughter, there's no city, there's no nation, there is no part of this planet that is outside of the realm of God's ability to shine light upon it. No matter how dark the dark is, no matter how long they've been wayward, no matter how bad it gets, it's not without the realm of possibility that God by His grace could shine light in that area. Light will shine in the darkest of dark areas. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Here's the second thing. The text tells us that victory will come. Look at verses 3 to 5. He says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, it's kind of hard for us to understand the emotional attachment that Isaiah is describing here, but if you lived in an agrarian culture and your ability to live through the winter or through the non-harvest season depended upon how the harvest turned out, you're pretty stoked when you have a big wheat harvest, right? You're like, yes, we get to eat. When, when there's no food growing out of the ground. And so if you're a, a, a farmer and you're, you're planting and then suddenly everything grows and you have a huge harvest, imagine being a little kid and dad brings these, 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 these wagon carts full of wheat and you see all of these store in this provision and you think, yes, what a beautiful harvest. Or if you were a part of a particular city that had troops that came home and they were victorious in battle and they brought with them the spoils of war and they start unpacking from sacks these swords and spears and gold that they had taken from the defeated armies and start distributing it to all the people in the city. You can imagine how much celebration and excitement there there was. I mean, it's one thing to get a rebate from the state of Indiana for a couple hundred bucks, right? And you're like, Yes! Imagine if it was thousands and thousands of dollars on the spoils of war and there's joy and excitement and what Isaiah is saying that God you have created this this joy in our hearts even in the midst of gloom there is this joy that's coming online and then look at verse 4 he says for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian 
Midian. You know what this is? This is the signature moment when God's people routed an army when the numbers were seriously against them. And they were against them by divine design. This is the story of Gideon. In that time, the Midianites kept coming in and taking all of their, their, their cattle, kept, kept roving bands, kept coming in and stealing um, their, their harvest. And the people were decimated by the Midianites. And eventually the people of Israel said, look, we have to do something. Gideon, be our leader. And so Gideon leads an attack on the Midianites. And God takes the number of their armed forces and reduces it down to 300 men. And then he arms them with a sword, a trumpet, and a lantern. And he sets 300 men around them in, the, in this valley, all in the mountains. And when they blow the trumpet, they break the pitchers, they, they shine their lamps, and the Midianites think that they're absolutely surrounded by a horde of armies. But little do they know it's only 300 people. Every single one of those lamps represented one soldier, not a, a troop of soldiers. And the result was the Midians began fighting amongst themselves, basically killed themselves because of their infighting and confusion, and Israel won the day. It's an example of a story where God can win the battle even with just a few people. And so Isaiah is explaining, look, God can win the battle. He can win the battle and he can do great things like he's done in the past. And then look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This pictures the utter defeat of an enemy and taking all of the garments of warfare and setting them on fire. So the idea is that this, this victory will come. Even though Assyria looked like it was strong, and even though the threats from the north were very real, Isaiah is telling the people of God and telling Ahaz, there is going to be a day when God's people will experience a stunning and surprising victory. And Ahaz, God is going to do this, and therefore you can trust Him now. That's the message. In light of what God is going to do in the future, you can place your hope in Him today. Third, we see that he talks about a son who will rule forever. Look at verses 6 to 7. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Notice that. The government will be on his shoulder. The, the, the thing that is causing us to depart from the living God through Ahaz, will one day be on somebody else who will be worthy of it, and the substance of his character and the beauty of all that he is will be able to sustain this government. This is going to be fulfilled through a person. And of course, if you know your New Testament, this is fulfilled in Jesus. It means that what is ultimately promised here, according to Isaiah 9, is the Son of God who will come as a baby, we talk about during this time of Christmas, who becomes the Savior of the world. He's picturing here this beautiful fulfillment that happens in Christ. There's four titles that are given to him. And these titles serve to magnify the greatness of his power and of the significance of his righteous rule. First, he's called Wonderful Counselor. That means that he is powerful. He can do miraculous things, but he's a wonderful counselor. He can do it, though, with wise counsel and wise advice. And if you think of Jesus' life, isn't this picture his life over and over? He's doing miraculous things and saying really wise things. 
He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's ascribed divine authority and empowerment. He has God abilities. Because he is God. Everlasting Father. This is not a a term that um, would have been familiar in the Old Testament. This idea of a father or a a ruler who is our father. So the idea here is that this coming ruler will have a benevolence about him. He will be father-like in his care. And the beautiful thing will be is that it will be everlasting in its scope. So just imagine this. I mean, it's... We hardly even have categories for this in our brain where someone is going to rule and reign and the extent of their reign is going to be forever and the depth of their reign will always be filled with righteousness and justice. You'll never have to worry about a coup attempt. You'll never have to wonder if someone's going to take this person off of the throne. you never have to worry if they're going to be voted out of office. This person is king of kings and lord of lords and no one can touch him. I mean, can you imagine what that's going to be like? He is called the Prince of Peace, this long-awaited peace. Imagine what it would feel like. I mean, imagine the safest that you've ever felt and to know that you're always going to feel that way. And it's never, ever, ever going to change. In fact, there's no possibility of it ever changing because the things that made change of peace possible don't even exist anymore. They're gone The whole order has been recreated under the banner of the lordship of this son who's given this person named Christ. It's a glorious image. Look at verse 7. There will be no limit to his peaceful influence of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and reestablish his his kingdom, this promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 7 says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Verse 7 also says, he will rule with justice and righteousness. He'll establish it. There'll be no wondering, well, what appellate court did it go to this time? What path is it? Who's, who's sitting on the court today? There'll be no worrying about that because he will rule with absolute justice and absolute righteousness. And then it says he will reign from this time forth and forevermore. There'll be no possibility of it ever changing. No ability for him to ever be unthroned. He will lead eternally in his dominion as the ruler of all of the earth. This future ruler is given unbelievable power and authority. His reign is characterized by peace. And when you, when you think of all of these things, you might be tempted to say, well, how in the world is that going to happen? That seems impossible. And Isaiah 9, verse 7 answers it. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, it doesn't depend upon you. It doesn't depend upon me. This, this, this plan is sure and firm, not because of what we do. It's firm and sure because of the zeal of the Lord of hosts. His zeal, by the way, for his own glory and for his own exaltation. So deliverance then is not going to come from political alliances, from military victories, or from shrewd politics. God is the only one who can give God's people what they really need, and he will do it. A new day will dawn And so Ahaz has promised all of this. The people of Judah are promised this. And in the meantime, since their future is going to be like this, 
He then calls them to trust God now. Stop making alliances with Assyria. Stop freaking out about Israel and Syria. Stop worrying about all of these things. Instead, realize this kingdom is going to come, so just simply trust in God. Doesn't that sound like the New Testament command? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So they are told to look to the future and trust in God. Where are we? In this narrative, we have a beautiful thing to consider in that we can consider the joy of both past and future grace. Meaning, Ahaz was told to trust in something in the future, but here's where you are. If you know Christ as your Savior, you've received the gospel, you've, you've understood that you're a sinner, that you needed Christ to save you from your sins, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You're in a position, if you've received Christ, that you can look back and you can see that God, in fact, did make good on that promise. He did fulfill what he said. He did send a son, a son who will rule and reign. He did send one who would bring peace on the internal aspects of our heart and eventually will bring bring peace on the external aspects of our entire culture. That you can see that God has really fulfilled what he said he would do in the person and work of Jesus. And now we are between two worlds, a world yet to come and a world that we've seen where God has fulfilled all of his promises in Christ. And therefore, shouldn't we, of all people, also have hearts that are robust in terms of our trust for the Lord. Doesn't it make sense that we, as New Testament believers, would be able to look at the story of the gospel and realize, you know what? Christ was everything I needed. I received him because I had no other hope apart from him. I couldn't self-atone. I couldn't take care of my sin. I needed somebody to save me. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. And you've seen the miracle of God's transformation inside of you. You you, you know how different you are. You know how radically different um, affections you have inside of your soul. You've seen that Christ is real. So then when something comes up and you're afraid of it, how do you battle fear? How do you battle anxiety? How do you deal with Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in 2013. You come back to the way in which God has been faithful to his promises throughout the course of your lifetime, and he surely will be faithful all the way to the end. It's one of the reasons that if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never bent the knee and confessed him, what I've just said doesn't apply to you. You see, in order to be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, you have to first receive the Lord Jesus, and then you can know the beauty of His grace, and then you can trust in future grace. See, the fact is, is that God gives us the tasting of our former grace in order to encourage our hearts as we move forward in grace. The Bible also tells us about the future. It tells us that one day Jesus is going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords, Once and for all, the devil will be defeated. He'll make all things new. And our existence with him in the new heaven and the new earth will be a glorious, glorious realm where we see the beauty of all of what he is for us. So the Old Testament saints were challenged to trust in God and to believe in him because one day he was going to change everything. Well, the fact of the matter is Christ has already ushered in that day in part, and we're waiting for that day in the future, and therefore the call for us is to trust in God's promises today. So if you're here, 
and life has become incredibly hard, or if there are circumstances that you look coming up, you look at coming up in the next number of months or weeks or years and are, quite frankly, they're the kind that would make you afraid, I want to remind you of the promises that God has given to you. And they are rooted in the person and work of Christ. A promise that you've already seen fulfilled in the Advent. So Advent is a perspective-changing moment. Christmas should remind us that God makes good on His promises. And therefore, you can trust Him. So, you go over the financial cliff, guess what? You can still trust the Lord. You with me on that? You go over the financial cliff, Jesus controls everything. You go to your family reunion at Christmas... Got some crazy people in your family? You can still trust Jesus and you can go. Now, how come nobody said amen to that? I don't understand that. (laughs) So you're telling me, okay, I get it. So you're more afraid of your Aunt Susie than you are the financial cliff. That's what I'm hearing, all right? You can trust the Lord for Aunt Susie, right? He can give you what to say to crazy Aunt Susie. He can help you to deal with your family. He can also help you for the wayward son or daughter that just it aches and it pains your heart that there will be another empty spot at the table again this year. God knows where he is. He knows where she is. He can get them. And maybe it's just that you need to start praying again. Maybe you've given up. Like, you know what? They're gone. It's over. You know, no, 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 no. Unto us a son is given. People who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. I could give you stories of children who all of a sudden one day God woke them up and said, Bang! What are you doing with your life? Hear the promises of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Humble yourselves, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your cares upon Him. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Nothing, absolutely nothing that happens in your life is outside of the realm of God's ability to still be in control of it. In all these things, Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And my favorite, Hebrews 12.3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here's the deal. you got to consider Jesus. you got to consider Jesus. You just have to keep considering Jesus. And you live this out, listen to me, for the next six days and live it to the best of your ability. Consider Jesus. Put your faith in him. Trust in God. God, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep being obedient. For some of you, it's a matter of money. I'm going to keep giving. I'm not going to trust in my ability to provide for myself, I'm going to give because you're the one who controls everything, including my boss's orientation towards me, the ability of me to keep my job, my 401k. You control it all. And therefore, every week when you give, every month when you give, you give evidence that you really trust in God. These promises are given so that we can have confidence that God is our protector, our provider, and the one who really cares for us, the one who is worthy of our trust. One of my favorite things about being a dad is those moments when your kids get to put their trust in you and to see it develop as they get older. I remember with each of my kids putting them on a dock in a lake and being in the water saying, come on, jump to daddy. And when they're young, oh, it's so scary. They're nervous about it. And they tentatively make that first jump and they realize, wow, my dad is competent. He can catch me, right? 
And you put them back up, they do it again and do it again and do it again. And before you know it, they start jumping when you're not looking, right? Dad, catch! Gotcha! <laughs> Don't do that, right? Why? They're so confident that you can catch without hands, you know? Watch this, Dad. No! Don't do that. And over time, they grow in their confidence. Why? Because it's a track record that, you know what? When I jump, my dad catches me. When I jump, he catches me. When I jump, he catches me. When I jump, he catches me. And over a lifetime, they begin to know when I jump, he catches me. In the same way, listen, friends, when you put your trust in the Lord, he is worthy of that trust. He has been faithful throughout generations. He's been faithful in your own life. And once again, we need to hear the message of Advent that the coming of the Christ child was a perspective changer. God kept his promise. He will keep it again. Therefore, you can trust him. You are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to put our trust in you. Lord, we say that, it sounds so trite at times, but the reality is, my guess, is there are a number of people in this room or folks who will hear this message over the internet who need today to say, Lord, I need to trust you. I'm scared. I don't know about how the situation is going to turn out. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that you are worthy of my trust. And so, God, like a little child, I'm just going to keep jumping. And I'm going to release my anxiety to you in the authority of the name of Christ. I am going to say, God, I cast my burdens upon you, and I'm going to trust you. So, Lord, thank you that Christmas is a reminder that our perspective can change. Thank you for the reorientation that comes by understanding the beauty of what it means for this wonderful gift of your Son to have come to the world, a guarantee of future hope and a fulfillment of past promises. So give us courage to keep trusting you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, friends, there'll be some folks up, some folks up here who would love to pray with you. If there's something going on in your life, don't leave today without having folks minister and pray for you, okay? They're here to serve you, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.